Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. For the past uh, month, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, these are teachings about the kingdom, entering the kingdom. What is the kingdom? And for the past month, um, since the start of this series, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, these first 12 verses in Matthew chapter 5. It's the most popular portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've been saying that Jesus is not referring to eight different kinds of people, people who are poor in spirit, people who mourn, people who are meek, people who are pure or the peacemakers or those who are persecuted, but rather Jesus is talking about one kind of person, one kind of person. These are the people that would, that would enter the kingdom. In other words, if you really want to know what authentic, what real Christianity looks like, this is it, these first 12 verses. And these last four qualities um, describe a new life, the lifestyle of those who enter the kingdom. Jesus is describing how biblically, you know, the power of the kingdom enters into our lives, transforms our lives inside out. It begins with the inner, the inner, you know, that's our psyche, and it moves out into our relationships. And it's so new, it's so radically different, it's so counterintuitive that Jesus calls it the new birth. It's a new birth, being born again. Um, we live in a time when people say that, you know, if you just learn about the rules, if you just learn the rules about life, then you're going to be successful. You'll have better relationships. You know, you're going to be able to find peace. But Jesus never says that. Jesus never says that. Christianity absolutely can help you in those areas, but what Jesus says, you know, I mean, it helps you. It's going to help you with your work. It's going to help you with your relationships. It's going to help you with inner peace, you know, inner comfort. But Jesus never says that that's the reason why we go to him. He says, come to me. I want you to come to me. There's a whole new direction, a whole new purpose in life. In other words, you don't come to Jesus because he's, simply because he's fulfilling. He can be, but he's not always going to be fulfilling. You don't come to Jesus because he solves problems. He can, but that's not why you go to him. You come to Jesus because he's true. You go to Jesus because he's real, because he's king. That's why we go. We reorient our entire lives around him. 
And this final set of Beatitudes talks about that, what it means to reorient your life around Jesus. It begins on the inside and works its way on the outside. It begins on the inside. You're pure in heart. And then it works its way on the outside. Peacemaking. It's a whole new direction. It's a whole new purpose in life. And that's the reason why Christians are persecuted. So there's three points today. Very simple. Three points. What it means when a Christian is pure in heart. What it means when Jesus calls us peacemakers. And what it means when he says that we are persecuted. Three things. Pure in heart. Peacemaking. Persecution. First, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, you don't become a Christian through subversion. You become a Christian through conversion. In other words, Christian is not, becoming a Christian is not about, or Christianity is not about behavioral modification, but rather it's, it's about heart transformation. And why is that? It's because it's possible to change yourself without having a change in heart. It's possible to, uh, you know, to improve yourself, to improve your life, but the Bible actually speaks about having a new heart. And that's the difference between religion and a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. Religion is about being outside in, transformation on the outside in. But the gospel is inside out. The gospel is about a heart transformation on the inside that works its way on the outside. And so, uh, you know, th- think about it this way. The Bible talks about the heart as the root. You know, when we think about the heart, we think about our feelings. But the Bible doesn't refer to the heart as your feelings. You know, the Greek word radix, radix, right? Uh, it means the core of things. You know, the values that you hold, your motives, what you're really after. This is what you're really thinking. This is what you're really feeling. The Bible says, as a result... The purity of heart, the purity of a person's heart is the mark of Christianity. So to be pure means to be singular, to be focused, and particularly in relation to our idols. You know, Psalm 24, it's the call to worship we read this morning. Who may ascend the holy hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to an idol. It's always in relation to idols. What's an idol? An idol is something that's good that replaces God in our lives. So instead of going to God as the security in your life, you go to something else. So if your idol is power, then life loses meaning unless you're on top of things and unless you're the person on top. You get that? You know, so what's your greatest fear? Your greatest fear would be losing power, being demoted, weakness. If uh, approval is your idol, then your nightmare is rejection. Rejection will absolutely destroy you. The Bible says the only way to understand, to know true peace, is to serve Jesus completely. All of life, then, is about discerning who the real king is in our lives. You know, what's a king? You know, we don't really have a concept of king in our world today, in our society. A king is someone who controls all of your life, your whole life. Idols, then, are our ways to control our own lives and still find meaning, a little bit of meaning in our lives. So if you go to a fake king, you're going to experience fake peace. And underneath, then, 
there's going to be this guilt, an underlying guilt and fear and insecurity and competitiveness and weakness. See, a pure heart recognizes these idols, abandons these idols, realizes you can't control your own life, and as a result, you need a savior. So what you have to do is you have to admit You have to first admit that you've been trying to be your own master all your life. You have to let go of control. It's the hardest thing to do. It's impossible to do unless God is already working in your life. You have to let go of control, and you have to come to the real king. How do you know you did? How do you know you came to the real king? What does it mean? You know, here's an example. If your heart is pure, if your heart is singular, then what that means is uh, that, you know, if you, the famous passage you know, of Jesus' explanation of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what it means to be singular. If your heart, your mind, and your will are, are loving the Lord, then that means it's integrated. The heart, the mind, the soul, the strength, it's integrated. You know, is your faith just intellect-based only? You can tell because, um, well, it, what parts of the worship appeal to you? Is it just only those parts that are intellect-based, you know, or is it just the parts that are emotion-based? Or are you looking for just to see, you know, how do I change my will? You know, how do I change outwardly? So you read and you study the Bible and you memorize scripture, but there's no love in your life. Or you're just overwhelmed, you're just built on emotion, but there's no change in your life. Or you're incredibly obedient, You're just striving, you're just working, but there's no joy, there's no worship in your life. That means at the core, the radix, your heart is not engaged. That's what that means. Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's joy, there's worship. You know, at the same time, there's peace. You see that? You know, there's, an, there's a story about uh, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. They were the founders of the Methodist Church. And, you know, if you know anything about John and Charles Wesley, they're incredibly methodical. That's the term Methodist Church. They're incredibly, you know, just outward, you know, just disciplined. Their lives were just focused and consumed by a disciplined life. But as John Wesley, you know, who was the, he was the brain. You know, he was all about the intellect, the mind. And yet Charles Wesley, who really wrote, he was the songwriter, he was the worshiper, he was the emotive brother, you know, as they both came across Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians, and as their hearts were transformed by the gospel, it was said that John Wesley started to write hymns, and Charles Wesley started to go into the word deeper. The mind, the heart, the will being integrated, you know, that's what it means to be singular, A Christian has joy because he's free, and he's free because he's forgiven, because he no longer is under the control of idols in his life. And as a result, he's at the banquet. He knows he doesn't deserve to be there, but he's at the banquet with the king of all kings. He didn't deserve it. It's like the 2000-2001 76ers. You know, you know you shouldn't have been there. You had no business being in the finals, but you're there. And as a result, you might as well just enjoy the ride, right? It brings you down to earth. Come on, we all know that they didn't deserve to be there that year, right? It, makes it brings it down to earth. Jesus says the pure in heart, the pure in heart, they will see God. You know, back then, you couldn't see God. You couldn't see God. If you saw God, it meant that you would be destroyed. What this means is then you have a new life, a life, according to, you know, Peter writes a life imperishable. 
The Apostle Paul writes, a life imperishable. Now you know what your life is made for. You know, before, we've always been afraid of that, and yet at the same time, we long for that in our lives. We're always afraid of it, and yet we long for it. We're afraid because we know we need a new heart. Deep inside, we know we need a new heart. And yet we're afraid because we don't want to give up control. That's what it means. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Now, the second point is Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. What does that mean? In the Bible, the peace that God talks about is not about inner calm. It's not about inner poise. I mean, obviously, the gospel is going to give you poise. But here, what Jesus is talking about is the end of a war. Real peace. You know, a peace treaty, the end of a war. It means that, you know, what, what he means here is that all human beings are naturally in a state of enmity with God. We're enemies of God. It means that the only time that God ever made himself weak, the only time that God ever chose to make himself touchable for our sakes, he did that for us. And what do we do? We killed him. We're at war with God. That's what it means. Now, some of you are saying, you struggle with that, what I just said. Because in your hearts, you're saying, well, I didn't really do anything. I never hated God. You know, I, didn't, I, I don't always obey God. But, you know, I definitely never, ever in my life ever said that I hated God. And I want to submit to you that I believe you're being genuine on one hand when you say that you don't hate God because your, hate is actually, your hatred is actually hidden. It's actually subterranean, subcorpus. It's inside. And, it's, and that is destroying and, and just distorting your life. And unless you see that, unless you, unless you come to grips with that, you will not, and you will not be able to make peace. Let's look at the mind, the heart, the will again. Let's take a look at those things again. The mind, the, the will, and the emotions. Okay? When these things are integrated, we call that worship. Loving the Lord with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now, I'm going to borrow this great example. My favorite preacher, Tim Keller, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow this example. In, in Jonathan Edwards, you know, he wrote uh, a treatise called Men Are Naturally God's Enemies. And he says, you know, you see symptoms of hostility all around you. All around us, there are symptoms of hostility that we have towards God. Jonathan Edwards says this. If you look carefully, and he was an incredible intellectual. Some people say that he was probably one of the most intellectual minds, perhaps the only great intellectual mind in American history. This is what scholars say about him. He says, if you look carefully, first of all, we have an intellectual hostility towards God. He says, you know, look at the real God. Tell me you're not hostile to him. Look at the God of the Old Testament. God gives us very, very stern commands. Don't touch the ark. And then someone comes along, touches the ark, and what happens? He falls and dies. And we say, you know, I I struggle with that. I really struggle with that. You know, I really struggle with God being that way. And because of that, I can't believe You know what that means? That's hostility. We have a willful hatred towards God. You know, when we get sick or, uh, you know, when we're uh, we're in trouble or after a particular sermon once in a while, you know, you pray. It's very easy to pray. And, you know, when you pray, you make all these promises, these resolutions, right? But you know in your heart, you know, that you're going to break those resolutions. You're going to break your promises, We break those prayers all the time. We break those promises all the time. In fact, you don't even think twice. Tomorrow morning when you get up, that prayer hasn't even crossed your mind since the moment that you prayed. You forget. You break it. If your daughter did that, if your best friend did that, you would hold him in contempt. You would hold her in contempt. 
you know, um, we, would, we would probably disown our kids if, we do, if they do that, you know, or at least we treat them that way, you know. But we take our promises to God so much lighter than we take our promises, we guard our promises with other human beings. What is that? That's hostility. Let's look at our emotions. When you're given a wonderful gift, you know, we're warned by the gift. We're warned by the giver. When you have a bad day, it's easy to turn to a warm body, a close friend. Turn to that person around for help, for support, right? We do that, you know. But think about it. It's so easy for us to look amidst the great gifts that God has given us. What has he given us? He's declared as beautiful in the eyes of Christ. True acceptance. You are Christ's lover. He has accepted us. He has given you his love. He has given you his heart. He has called us eternal treasures. We, in, in God, we have a father. In Christ, we have a lover. We have provision. We have forgiveness. We have true, genuine community. But yet, what do we say? In the very gifts that God has given us, in our community groups, we complain. We say, I don't have a boyfriend. You know, where is God when I need him? In the very, within the context of the very gifts that God has given us, we complain, you know, I don't have a job. You know, God is not real to me. I need to be accepted. Where is God in my life? What is that? That's hostility. That's hostility. You know, if you're always saying, I don't believe you, I'm going to break promises to you without even thinking about it, you know, I'm going to reject you, I'm going to resist you, I'm not even going to take the gifts that you've given me very warmly. You're not loving. You're, you're hating. That's what you're doing. You know, when Jesus died, the tombs literally were emptied. There was an earthquake. The rocks literally split open, yet we can sit solidly and, and stoically in our chairs, in our seats, you know, and uh, be very coarse and shallow and callous. That's called residual hostility. Residual hostility. If your spouse experienced that, you know, he or she would say, you don't love me, you hate me. All I ever did was love you. All I ever did was sacrifice my life for you, but you hate me. Your spouse would easily say that. When things are happening in your life that you don't like, or things are not happening in your life and you don't like that, you see, um, you know, God becomes your enemy. And your hostility, you know, it was once hidden, it starts to show up. And until you see that, you will never enter the kingdom. You see that? Because there's always that hidden enemy. You know, it's going to show up when things go bad, and and we're going to forget God when things go well. And and as a result, we're never going to go to God. The gospel says this. God has gotten rid of the enemy. He's gotten rid of it. He sent Jesus. We killed him. And yet, when we killed him, Jesus took away the punishment that we deserved. A Christian says, Jesus took away the punishment I deserved and gave me everything that he deserved. He freed, and that freed God to send his spirit to our hearts. And that means the moment that you see this, the moment that you see that you are an enemy of God, that means the spirit is already working in your life. God has already come. He's gained access into your heart and he has come and he's working to rid that enemy quality, the war that's already in there. And once you see it's there, you have the power to be healed from it. Do you see that? Do you know that? Until then, there's no peace. There's this passage in the Old Testament. You have Naaman, a relatively obscure character, in the, in the, a person in the Old Testament. He's a Syrian general and he sends his messenger to Elisha, a prophet of God. Uh, and basically what he needs is healing. 
And he says, oh, I want you to go to Elisha for healing, you know, to tell me how to get healed, you know, because he's got leprosy. And Elisha basically tells the messenger to come. He basically tells, you know, Naaman, you know, tell him to come and bathe in the Jordan River and he'll be cleansed. And Naaman is irritated. You know, he says, I'm an important person. I've got tremendous status. You want me to come to you? How come you're not coming to me? Why do I have to go to you? Why do I have to go to that rotten, filthy river and wash myself there? I don't want to do that. And the servant turns to him, and the servant says, well, you know, are you too proud to be healed? And so Naaman relents, and he goes down to the Jordan River, and he washes himself, and he's cleaned, and he's healed. And he says to himself, he says, I've been a fool. He's been changed. He says, I've been a fool. Unless you're willing to see that you are at war with God, you will not have peace. You know, most, most of us are afraid to admit that we're at war. You know, and, you know, we're also afraid to give up control, right, as a result. You know, Christian, you know, we, say, we look at the Christian life and we say, oh, it's beneath me. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of how I'm going to look in front of my coworkers. You know, if I start, my life starts to shape up and, and change, you know, what am I going to do? And what we're saying here is that a lot of us are like Naaman. You know, but we won't have peace until you see that, until you acknowledge that we are at war, that you need the healing. That is more important than any of the things that you have right now, these things. That's how you have peace. It's going to restore your worship to God. Um, Peacemaking, some of us, you know, we think that peacemaking means that what it is is a person who doesn't rock the boat, you know, just keeps the peace, you know, but that really can't be it. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus wasn't like that. You know, how did he make peace? By not making waves? Absolutely not. If peace begins by acknowledging or admitting to our hostility to God, what's peacemaking? You know, what's true peacemaking? It, it announce, it's us proclaiming and announcing that the war is over. All over us, in our lives, all around us, we experience the residual hostility that we have towards God. And a peacemaker is somebody who's overwhelmed by the fact that he has, that the war is over in his life. And that brings us such joy and such contentment in our lives that we are able to share and bring that peace to other people, to teach them over again. You know what? You're, you're at war. The re- that's why you're anxious. That's why you're bitter. That's why you're angry. That's why you're never satisfied. Now, obviously, we do that over the context in relationship over time, but as we do that, what we're doing is we're, we realize, you know, and we want to convey, you need to make peace with God because the war is over. And let me tell you how the war is over. Jesus took on the wrath. Jesus took on the war. You know, I was at war, but now I'm at peace. And what we're doing is we're bringing good news to those around us. You know, it looks like this sometimes. Sometimes it's going to be freeing people up. Sometimes it's to relieve people. Sometimes we're comforting people. Sometimes we're rescuing them from themselves, from their sin. But the point is, you have a completely different view of people around you. You're no longer looking at them as beneath you. You're no longer looking at them as people that you need to step over or climb over. You want to bring peace. You know, instead of being self-conscious, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to like that person. I'm not sure if they like me. Is this person worth any of my trouble? Instead of doing that, back then, you know, everything was about performance. Everything, all of our relationships are based on performance. But now it's no longer based on performance. You know, you're at peace, and you want to bring peace to other people. You know, you're no longer asking, is this person worth my trouble? 
What you're really saying is, what's God doing in this person's life? And why am I in it? Why am I there? Why am I present? That's peacemaking. It's a new purpose in life. A whole new direction, a whole new purpose in life. You're sensitive to the Spirit's work in your life. You're praying for people. How can I encourage what God is doing in their lives? That's the second point. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Uh, the third point, why does, you know, we talked about being pure in heart, singular, focused, and we talked about peacemaking. Because you're singular and focused, you're worshiping God in the process. Inside out, you are healed, and, and now you know that the war is over. You realize you are at war with God, hostility towards God, and now you are healed, right? Um, why does that lead to persecution? I mean, it seems like persecution would not happen if that's the case. Why does it lead to persecution then? You know, every beatitude is true of all Christians, you know, let's start with this. Every beatitude, every blessing is true of all Christians. We said that, that those are all the qualities of a Christian. So it's not only like some of you are poor in spirit and others of you are meek and still others of you are mourning and others of you are persecuted. That's not what it says here. These are the qualities of everyone who enters the kingdom. And if that's the case, that means that everyone who is a Christian is persecuted. You know, it's all at the same time. You know, you know, The Bible doesn't say that everyone who is persecuted is godly. But everyone who is godly is persecuted. You know, you can be persecuted. You know, sometimes, I'm so persecuted. It must be because I'm a Christian. You can be persecuted because you're just unpleasant or just annoying as a person. It is possible, you know. You know, don't don't blame God for that, right? Uh, Even if you're a Christian. But the church, a new Christian has found favor with all people and yet at the same time will later be persecuted by them. You're going to attract people and at the same time repel them. That's the history of the church, all at the same time. You know, this text says, you know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to branch off of this text. Let's think about it. If no one is attracted to you, even though you believe you're a loving person, or if no one is repelled by you, even though you believe, because even though you believe you're, all, you're pursuing holiness, you may not be a Christian. You may not be a believer. You may not have entered the kingdom. Uh, you, know, at the, you know, if you're always being persecuted, you know, to be honest, it's probably because you have repulsive character. You know, in all honesty, <laughs> right? Um, if you're never persecuted, then it's probably because you're a coward. You know, The Spirit hasn't come in. If you're always persecuted, it's probably because you are very confident, but you're not humble. If you're never persecuted, it's probably because you are very humble, but not confident. The gospel gives us humility and confidence at the same time. You know, otherwise you're not gospel transformed. Let's think about our careers. You know, um, we live in the city of Philadelphia. We have to talk about careers. You know, if you don't cut corners, if you work eight hours, honest day, a full, you know, a full honest, hardworking day, you're going to get persecuted. You know why? Just by nature, because you're going to make other people look bad, because other people like to cut corners, other people like to cheat on their hours, other people are not as hardworking. So by nature, you're going to make them look bad. You know, and they're going to question you. They're going to say, "What's that guy's angle?" What's that guy going for? What's that person uh, trying to, what's that person's agenda? They're not going to believe you intellectually. 
They're going to be reactive to you, meaning they're not going to be warm to you. They're going to harm you. They're going to resist you. You see that? You're taking on the character, you know, of, um, of somebody who's, being, uh, who's going to basically receive hostility. You're being persecuted. Let's talk about management. If you get promoted to become a manager, managers are expected to give their all for the sake of the, the corporation, right? That's how it works, right? A Christian manager will not underwork, right? Eight hours, right? But they won't overwork either. They're going to give it their all. They're going to give it everything they've got, but they're not going to overwork at the cost of their lives, the quality of their family, their friends, their relationships, their health. You get it? You see what I'm saying? You know, you're going to get chastised for that. They're going to look down on you for that. They're going to watch you for that. What do you think that's called? It's because they don't believe you. They want to resist you. You know, they don't want to be warm to you. Right? That's persecution. In most cases, we experience the slightest bit of that. It's more than we can bear. How do you know that you're a peacemaker? You know, um, how do you know that you're a peacemaker? You know, some of it, is going to be because of the implicit work of the Spirit in your life. You're going to experience some persecution as a result of the implicit work of the Spirit in your life. It's going to change your character. It's going to shape your character. And those differences are going to lead to some chastising, right? You're going to, some people looking at you, raising their eyebrows at you. But some of it is not just going to be implicit. It's going to be an explicit work of God in your life. And as a result of that, people are going to say, this person is completely different. You know, I don't know if I can trust him anymore. I don't know if I can, uh, this person's credible in my life anymore. I don't know if this person seems like a fanatic, you know, because it's so different, so radical. At the least, it's counterintuitive, countercultural. You know, everybody else is in the corporate ladder is stepping over one another to get ahead. What you're saying is, you know what, let me help Completely radical. What's this person's agenda? They're not going to trust you. Or they're going to resist you. Or they're going to look down on you. Jesus says, rejoice. He doesn't say, just take it, grin and bear it, press on. That's not what he says. He says, rejoice in your suffering. How do you do that? How is it possible to rejoice? Because, let's face it, we, we, we would all we all do, and we would all struggle with that. How do you rejoice in that? And here's how. You have to remember the gospel. You have to remember. By remembering, we can rejoice. When your persecution is more than you can bear, you know, you're going to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? Helen Roosevelt was a, was a famous missionary who wrote, you know, documented accounts of her missionary experiences. And a very bright woman, she said, you know, in the course of her annals and her accounts, she said that any time she was faced with a challenge in her life, she would ask herself and write, is it really worth it? And she would cognitively work it through and pray it through and come to some conclusion and say, you know what, it is worth it, I will move forward. And when it came to the question of missions, she was challenged about going to missions in Africa, she asked herself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? She prayed it through, she thought it through, and cognitively came up with an answer. She said, it is absolutely worthwhile and worth it for me to go on missions. So she went to missions in Africa, and there she was repeatedly raped by the tribe that she was ministering to, the very tribe that she was ministering to, and at one particular moment after being raped, she sat down and prayed again, is it really worth it? And she says, for the first time in my life, I said, it is not worth it. This is not worth it. And then a still small voice spoke into me. And it said, Helen Roosevelt, the question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worth it? And Helen Roosevelt's response is, no, 
then the question is not, are you worth it? Because you are more than worthy. The question is, am I worthy? That was Helen Roosevelt. It's very easy for us to question when persecution is more than we can bear, whether or not it's worth it. Jesus, what made it worth it for Helen Roosevelt? What would make it worth it for us? Jesus suffered. Who is truly pure in heart? Jesus is pure in heart. Jesus is singular. Jesus is the peacemaker, the ultimate peacemaker. He made peace, but he was also persecuted all the way to the cross. On the cross, Jesus hung between two criminals, right? One person completely disbelieved him intellectually, did not believe him, you know, questioned him to the end, you know, wasn't warm to him, mocked at him, hurled insults at him, you know, shunned him. He was shunned by the people around him, by the crowds. He was persecuted. In other words, they re, you know, that criminal resisted him with his own will, resisted him emotionally, resisted him intellectually. He was hostile. He suffered incredible hostility, not just by that criminal, but by everybody around him. His own disciples had deserted him. And on the cross, what happened? He was, the ultimate persecution came to him on the cross. Even though he came with all confidence and all humility, he was killed. And yet Isaiah 53, even though he was hung on the cross, suffering the shame, the burden that his people deserved, he looked to his father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His own father abandoned him and forsaken him, rejected him, turned his face away from him. The beatific glory of God turned away. The blessing became the curse. Jesus suffered the ultimate wrath of God. And then in Isaiah 53, you know, we tend to focus on the suffering servant portion of Isaiah 53 and, and the detailing the suffering that Jesus would undergo. It says at the end that he would be satisfied by it. Jesus is satisfied by that. What that means is that at Gethsemane, he's in Gethsemane, he's praying to the Father, and there he's overwhelmed because he, he knows and he's experienced what would become of him in the next day. And he's on the cross and he sees the insults that are hurled at him and he's being mocked. And yet, the Bible says that Jesus, that gave him satisfaction. That gave him ultimate satisfaction. On the cross, it gave him ultimate satisfaction. Think about that. He saw everything that he would suffer. And yet, when he, when he is asked, is it worth it? He says, it was absolutely worth it. It is to my satisfaction. All these things had to come to pass, and he was satisfied. He said, it is finished. For you, for you. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we would be accepted. God turned his face from Jesus so we could see his face. Jesus was singular. Jesus was pure in heart. The promise was that he would see God, and yet he did not see God, so that we would see God. Jesus, the peacemaker, on the cross, became sin. He became sin. In other words, the wrath of God, the war of God was opened up, and the wrath of God fell, the rejection of God fell on Christ. Jesus faced the ultimate wrath that we deserve, so that we would have the ultimate blessing that he deserved. And when you see what Jesus did for you, focused singularly for you. He becomes your beauty. 
Because you're his beauty. He becomes your beauty. He becomes the answer to your soul's delight. Do you see that? What your soul has been longing for all your life. Helen Rosevere says, you know, I gave up nothing, and yet I gained everything. The gospel teaches us to realize that we gave up nothing in comparison in gaining everything. We've gained the kingdom in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? As I close in prayer, I'm going to call up um, my own father in faith. Um, if you notice, every month we, we tend to have, uh, on the average, every month we have communion together as a, as a body. And uh, Reverend Greg Hobal, um, who I tremendously respect, very few people are asked here more than once a month. Reverend Hobal has been asked to come here at least three times already because he's a spiritual father of mine. And um, these, these times are special for our family and our body. So as I close in prayer, he will be leading us in communion together in faith. Let's pray.